tuning into Small Big Wings, a window to the world of young, ambitious problem solvers. They are makers, designers, builders, hackers, scientists who heard their inner voice and amplified it. To learn more about our guest and to view the highlights of this episode, head on over to fbw.hvj.coach. Our guest today is Viraj Kulkarni. It's not often that we find people who have as much interest in studying the deep philosophical aspects of our inner science as much as they apply themselves to the outer world which beckons us. Yes, Viraj is a computer scientist bringing together machine learning and quantum computing. And in his role as the principal data scientist for Deep Tech, he manages a team of data scientists and engineers developing AI models for diagnosing medical conditions from MRI and CT scans. He feels at home delving deep into the Upanishads, which are the ancient scriptures concerned with the nature of reality, mind and self. His articles have been published in The Wire, The Week, Paradise, Towards Data Science and his first novel, Her Journey Within, was ranked number one on the Amazon.in bestseller list for spiritual fiction. He did his master's in computer science from UC Berkeley and is currently on his way to gain his doctorate pursuing research on the intersection of quantum computing, machine learning and computational theory. Welcome Viraj to Small Big Wins. Thanks sir. Honored to be part of this conversation. Thank you Viraj. Needless to say that when I started reading about you, reading all your articles, there was on one side a lot of complexity to deal with on, and on the other side there was a lot of simplicity also. And last night when looking through my old papers and stuff, I came across these lines and I don't know who wrote this poem, but it fits in well in this conversation with you. It goes like this. Electrons are highly mysterious. This topic indeed is quite serious. It's starting to feel so imperious. I think I'm becoming delirious. I wanted to finally grasp the quantum mechanics at last. I stayed up for half the night reading and by morning I felt like retreating. Viraj, with this, I want to really ask you in simple terms, what is quantum computing? In your own essays, you have written that quantum physics is one of the most remarkable developments of the 20th century. But for our audience in simple terms, what can you share with us? So I won't call it quantum physics or quantum computing because you also have quantum chemistry now. Quantum science for me is a very deep way of looking at the world around us. So if we contrast the quantum way of things with the previous approach, what we could call classical approaches, the difference between them is at times it's very small but at times it's extremely large as well. So the world of quantum physics started when we really understood that classical physics does not work for the microscopic scales of subatomic particles. And that gave birth to this world of quantum physics. There is a slight connotation of the quantum being beyond reason, but it is not beyond reason. Many people speak about this world being beyond logic or reason. Actually, I point out that it is not at all beyond reason. It does not defy logic. It does defy our intuition. In the world of quantum physics, particles or, or what we previously thought were particles 
are not really particles the waves are not located in any one place and this causes some new observations that come and quantum computing is then harnessing these for computing i was referring to this uncertainty principle heisenberg which points out the limits of our knowledge by stating that the more precisely we know the position of a given particle the less precise a measurement of its momentum is and vice versa the uncertainty principle is in some way it is not understood well because the people who speak about it they often mention that principle in a way that makes it sound about our inability to measure both both the quantities well it is actually not about our ability or inability to measure it well it is about the uncertainty in the knowledge itself velocity and position of the particle cannot be known not because we are unable to know it or because of anything about the apparatus itself but it's more fundamental in a way in a way viraj you are saying that when people say that this defies logic or it is very strange actually are you saying that defying of logic is what is the most fundamental yes that is true because uh, the strange and weird observations those happen to be the most interesting ones yeah and viraj in one of your papers i think you write that quantization of energy and its influence on how energy and matter interact is part of the fundamental framework for understanding and describing nature can you throw more light on this so this field right actually started when we understood that many things right including energy then you cannot divide time into smaller energy to smaller and smaller into infinite at at some point you reach something let's let's call it a which is which is an amount which you cannot divide if you have one quantity you cannot divide this time into two equal intervals and this observation is what, what was the seed that's why it's called quantum in it that goes back to this observation that everything in the world exists finally as quanta which cannot be broken down for understand so it's like the smallest unit ever and many of your writings they combine the inner and outer worlds and somewhere you have also mentioned that science writers have always reveled in portraying the tension between the reality described by quantum physics and the reality we perceive through our senses why is that science is all about understanding things so if we take the human psychology for instance at one layer we are talking about how different people interact with each other when we go deeper down mm-hmm. we stop talking about human mind in terms of how one individual interacts with the environment but we start talking about the different processes that are carried out i think the deeper down we go into our own inner minds right into how our brain may operate at some point we reach what is called mind body problem which we may not have yet answered the the problem essentially is that if our emotions are governed by the physical brain and the physical brain in turn functions because of the different neurochemical activities that take place within it we we end up at a picture where 
how different pieces of matter interact with each other so our cognition is reduced to the principles of matter this view where matter comes first and the way the brain functions can be completely explained by the laws of physics alone uh-huh. this view has recently gained a, a contrasting view which states that cognition our consciousness it cannot be explained by the behavior of matter our consciousness is something completely different and this contrasting view if you take that view to to its own logical conclusion we end up saying that consciousness comes first and the world that we see the objects that we touch reality itself it emerges from the consciousness so the first view holds that reality will exist even if there is no consciousness the second view says that consciousness exists on its own independently and the reality we see around us emerges from it i digress from what you initially asked but i think all of science you know it comes down to this addressing this in one way or another and your personal view is to be honest i have been fluctuating if you had asked me a few years ago i would have strongly said that consciousness alone exists so in upanishad this view is stated very that what truly exists is this consciousness i have fluctuated between this view of the upanishad and the contrasting so for most people this might seem a very abstract thing but but how does this affect us and there would be people who say that this has no effect on our everyday lives i strongly disagree with that i think how we see these things are so fundamental they start influencing you eventually they percolate down to almost every single thing you do so the way the operation said it these things they affect every breath you take i remember reading this from steven weinberg where he says nature feels a sense of beauty of wonder and mystery however far we come in the search for a final theory we'll never know why the laws of nature are the way they are a mystery will always remain having said that viraj what are some of your innate experiences i feel that experiences which have a profound impact on your life often they don't happen just one instance of time but they are something that you gradually come to understand i think the writing has transformed me in which i did imagine would happen for example being a writer forces you to think from other people's perspectives so every time i write i need to place myself in the shoes of every character it forces me to to think from that character's perspective by considering that particular character's history psychology and this gradually becomes a habit when you start doing this for writing scenes in your book this becomes a habit and then you start doing it in your everyday life too what writing taught me was this strong sense of empathy because now if i am in a room with multiple people in it i find myself imagining what they would be going through right at that particular instant of time i see myself trying to predict what a person might say this bred in me a very strong sense of empathy which previously was not there more than the money that you make from more than the recognition you get more than the admiration you receive more than all of this writing does you in a very fundamental way and that transformative experience i had 
there was another thing if you want to tell a story every storyteller knows that a sequence of events is not really a story so what really makes a story a sequence of events becomes a story when characters interact with those events they respond to those events so so if you give the same sequence of events to two writers they end up writing two completely different stories true and this is what happens in our everyday life so handed a sequence of events and how we respond to those events how we think whether i feel sad grateful this forms the story of my life this led me to developing a small technique that i use whenever something important happens in my life i step back i i move into a third person mode and then i feel okay if i were a writer what would i have viraj see this as a problem an opportunity i place myself in a third in order to write viraj's story at first this experience i find it very awkward because you're not used to it and the strange thing has when you follow the teachings of the upanishad to, to a certain checkpoint this is exactly what happened and this is what i learned through writing so what i learned from my practice of the upanishads and what i learned from writing both these views moment i understood this had happened you know, that i would say was very transformative it's very interesting and and i think that's very profound also very well explained are you able to do this consciously all the time putting yourself as a third person in critical times or in times of questioning to yourself so i've been practicing trying to do this for the last 8 years initially it did not happen at all so in the first few years i tried to put myself in this third person perspective that used to be very short lived over time the duration of that experience has increased i am still far from being able to do this consistently at all times but i don't think that essential for the benefits of any practice is not being invested in your identity so you have an identity so i am a particular person viraj is my name that is my social identity mm-hmm. this name which is tied to everything around the husband viraj an engineer but realizing that i am not that that i think is the spiritual endeavor this spiritual endeavor might be contemplating yourself it might be an ashram and becoming a part of community it might be an act of devotion where you pray to but i think all of these spiritual endeavors they aimed at realizing that the i in me is not this social identity and uh, to answer your question whether i am able to do it at all, all times so no i am not able to do it always but i do try to at least once in a day i do try to So reach that point where I am able to break my bond with this social world and experience the fact that I am not. What has helped you the most in remembering that you should do this? Is there some kind of a trick which you use that I got to remember this? I got to get into the third position. I think. So, so there are tricks in the course of my practice and search i i did come across certain tricks but i did not use them as such i mean i won't say that they are not effective because they might be highly effective for others but in my practice i did not adopt one trick which really stuck so i tried out some things but regardless of what 
tricks or techniques you use one constant is that this needs a lot of practice because our identification with our social identities this is a habit it's a habit that has formed over many years breaking a habit never happens instantly if you want to consciously break a habit or change a habit this change only happens when consistently do something else or you consistently adopt the new habit i don't want to categorize this as indian philosophy from everything else but i think the the true value of philosophy is in the adopted practice and india the ancient practices were always about combining your theoretical knowledge understanding intuition so i want to draw a very fine line maybe too fine to insist i think even keeping this thought at the back of your mind constantly reimposing that thought on me is this not the same as brainwashing myself but i think you should adopt this as a practice only if you see reason in it if you don't agree with it if you don't agree with the principle it might cause more harm than that is where i challenge the notion of faith so personally leaving my atheism aside i would say that your belief in god your religious act your prayers will only help you if you really believe god exists and if you don't believe god exists then no matter how much you do all of this it won't help and and the same thing the exact same thing i would apply to practicing anything else that's how i would like to differentiate between blind faith superstition or brainwashing me into this i would like to differentiate this from rationally agreeing with it i'm glad viraj you completed this and you drew this distinction i think how you take god whether it is like you said a personal god a bare postulation or it's an idol or an ideal it's something terrestrial or transcendental so i think these questions everyone has to fought for his or her own self absolutely you felt that writing brought you empathy so is it fair to say that quality of empathy it is something intangible and you are using that intangible to actually determine how someone is thinking or feeling or what is going through him or her so actually you are using the intangible to get to the tangible does that make sense there are certain things in life that you cannot explain right? things which you in a way assume that they are there but you cannot explain them but as a scientist i am very skeptical about unexplained so for me empathy i i would not classify it as something that is intangible in a way that i think empathy can be explained does empathy require something that is unseen that we don't know about it might require but personally i would hesitate to make that claim got it you said that habit need years to break and our neural networks therefore have to be rewired or refired for that to happen and it's a process it's a practice which you need to do but coming to the artificial neural network which you are dealing with on a everyday basis in your own profession and life you do things much quicker so artificial neural networks are what is behind artificial intelligence initially when the term ai came out for artificial intelligence or it became more uh, in vogue i used to also say that ai also stands for authentic intelligence and now with computational complexity 
or the fact that the correlation is coming out from data and is giving out the results. Is there a need at all to go behind that? Is there a need to know cause? So Harsh, you have actually put your finger on an extremely important thing. We need to know the cause, right? Or is it even know the cause? I have a slightly different take on this. Before I explain that, I'll, I'll just speak a bit about what AI does. Criticism is frequently against AI. So to put it very briefly, the AI take previous data that we already have. They extract patterns from that data. And then they use these patterns to make predictions. So while they do all this, there is no logic that the AI applies to things. So this is purely everything or the most things that now are purely based on patterns and there is no logical thinking. So that is one common thing that people used to attack AI. That AI cannot think. AI can only match patterns. AI cannot think. What I feel, I have not done enough rigorous research yet on this, but what I intuitively feel is that even human beings, even our brains, even when we think, even then we are only matching patterns the same way. While it's true to say that AI cannot think, I really want to challenge the notion that even we can think. Can we really think? Do you understand how you think? And if you look inside, you will find that even we don't know how we think. The processes of thought have not been mapped at all. We know that a certain electrical impulse to a certain part of the brain leads to a certain outcome. We don't know how that happens. Is there a how? Is there a mechanism that governs our thinking? Probably not. Probably the neural networks in our brains are also just matching. They may be far more powerful than the artificial, but I think even we don't think. So that's a, that's a counter argument. And I'm sure there would be ways to challenge that I feel that even we don't think. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pull out something from one of your own writing. You say that of the 20th century, AI's critics argued that computers would never beat humans at chess because playing chess requires imagination, intuition, foresight, planning, what they called real intelligence and not just computational ability. But in 97, IBM's Deep Blue Chess program defeated Gary Kasparov. Therefore, Viraj, AI did evolve. Yeah, so actually to take the same example, that is an excellent example that supports my Yes. Because abilities such as imagination, strategic planning, foresight, right? These are very human abilities. And we believe that, you know, we are unique in a way because we have these abilities. But chess can be reduced to computational patterns. Now, if abilities like imagination, planning and foresight, if these can be reduced to patterns, why can all of our intelligence not be reduced to patterns. This happened with the deep blue chess program and it defeated Gary Kasparov. But you have something recently come up, which was the GPT-3. And it went from 1.5 billion parameters to maybe 100 times more, 175 billion parameters. So is it a question of giving it much more larger input, much more larger data set that it is able to bring better results, which kind of look akin in some way to imagination, intuition, foresight, prediction. So for GPT-3, 
almost all internet was input and the results we see from gpt3 are amazing gpt3 is an ai application it can write emails articles stories it can even translate between different languages it can simplify text so if you give gpt3 complex legal and ask it to simplify it it can even do that so if you did not know about how gpt3 works you would easily be fooled about gpt3 one the neural net is really big and second it was fed with a lot of data so that brings me to another criticism of that we often hear ai needs a lot more data than humans need to be able to perform any task so if you want to build ai that can differentiate between pictures of cats and dogs this ai would need a lot of pictures in order to differentiate between pictures of cats and dogs whereas a human being could be just given few pictures of cats and dogs and we would be able to know that so so while this may appear true what we are discounting in our brain a baby is born every interaction that the baby does so it could be touch it could be eyesight so from all senses we receive data after having been trained on such huge amount of data it is but natural that with only a few examples we would be able to differentiate between cats and dogs as a thought experiment if you were to take the human brain and train both of them on exactly the same data i would argue that both might perform the same because intelligence is a function of patterns that is my thesis viraj when you say that the human brain have evolved over millions of years this means that every human being is not isolated is not independent there is a larger ecosystem to which he is connected because if he would have been independent each brain would have been independent and if there is evolution there is some kind of deeper connection which is not visible we have been talking somewhere about consciousness and unification so does that make any logic with you we need to make a very important choice in which either reality exists or consciousness exists. cannot exist reality as we see in the world right reality of the world yes which includes everything our bodies the table and the chair the sun and the moon light electricity so either the reality exists in which our consciousness is emergent either that is true or alternatively our our consciousness alone exists and reality is an illusion and through all that i have so far studied and learned and experienced only one of them can be true i have not made up my choice but in the other case where only consciousness exists ultimately everything that we see all creatures or animals in it all objects all of them are arising out of just the same one consciousness which alone exists so both you and i and everybody all of their consciousnesses are actually the same we are all identical in a way right and all of this sounds very fancy it sounds very mystical and my my appeal to everyone is that it's very easy to hear these things and say okay wow that's an amazing thought and then conveniently brush it aside because it's so it's, it's very easy to conveniently brush these things aside once you hear them and you may agree with them you may not agree with them you might find it irrelevant then you brush them aside but my appeal to everyone is there there's something that these thoughts are accessible to everyone right? they don't need you to understand complex equations they don't need you to understand any mathematical tool 
you don't need to be a well educated examine these thoughts right you just need to be curious about them and you just need to look into them many ancient sages were not educated at all you don't need fancy education for them i was reading the atma puja upanishad and i was reading osho's commentary on that and and i think these lines always stayed with me there is something unknown and that unknown gets converted into known that is the process of science there is something which is the unknowable the most fundamental maybe like this quanta which you talked about he in his own enlightenment has said that that will always remain unknowable and that is the mystery yeah? and recently i was doing a program with a marvelous lady called dr gauri rokham she does a program on nutrition and healing and has herself rooted in lot of ancient things and at the same time a lot of contemporary wisdom also and she started with these five elements and she said that the earth is the crosses and then the next level of fertility is water the next is fire the next is air and the most subtle of all is ether because ether is all pervading it is the most subtle and so i was drawn to say this because you talked about consciousness you talked about fertility you talked about its all pervasive nature so i just thought yeah yeah so i think there are there are very different ways of seeing the same thing like until a few years back since i i spoke about being an atheist till a few years back i could not understand what people see in god you know where does this path of devotion to god although i had come across my readings multiple times right, that there are different ways you know the nyan marga inquiry and bhakti marga right, the path of devotion to god they lead to the same place in it so that's what i had read but i could not understand how that happens but fortunately at some point i was able to see i want probably going to the details of it but very short explanation of what think as leads you to understand that your identity is not connected to these different social identity the path of devotion where you surrender to and you believe that everything is god and and you become one both of them lead to dispelling this illusion of the ego this uh, attachment to your false identity right i won't call them false identities let's call them superficial identities right and and after that i've seen different ways where people have explored the same ideas but i think it's it's very easy to get caught up in words so for example when i say that i don't believe god exists if you really hear each other then you might understand that i am talking of a different idea of, and maybe you have a different idea about but this the fact that we are using the same word god for these two different ideas so unless you really sit down and patiently rigorously define every word that you use which may not be possible at all i think different people have different ways of exploring the same ideas that's true in your professional work at the time being where you are developing ai models for diagnosing medical condition from mct scans how are you dealing with the matter of correlation and causation over there how are you dealing with the fact that human prejudices are not built into your ai models we don't actually differentiate between causation and correlation at all because for for this particular application what the ai needs to do given an input x-ray or any other image we need to predict whether that particular image has a certain pathology so does this x-ray have tbs so we need to predict the likelihood that the x-ray has we are not explaining the cause 
there are cases where ideologists may not agree with so these biases are there but i want to really call them biases but the question that is an extremely important one that how do we make ai which is, which is free of human prejudices can it even be done this is a field on its own how can we make ai which is ethical there is a lot of research happening in this field but i want to say that we cannot really develop technology that can completely overcome the biases that we have because if you want to make ai that is fair we must first define what we mean by fair and i think most disagreements happen and if you can tell me what fair is then i can build ai that but the problem is that what you mean by fair may not be what somebody else calls fair so that's a big challenge actually i want to talk about your book i went through that book and you acknowledge at the beginning of the book in specific your mother and wife and you say to my mother who taught me the importance of thought and reason and to my wife who showed me a world beyond that can you talk to us about this yes so the book was in a phase of life where i was really transitioning between things there was a lot of flux a lot of changes happened and that was a time when on an intellectual front i grappled between and the world of reason and the world of emotions which i feel you need to figure out what is really important for you coming from the world of science my quest it is always been understand things to dig deeper into them and understand how things work how they operate how different things influence each other it's a very analytical world which has no place for human warmth compassion and emotions my mother was very analytical and i think throughout my childhood she encouraged me to go through science workshops when i was in school i started up a science lab in the house a very small area both of them really encouraged my pursuit in science what happened is that after i got married i was suddenly introduced to a new world and i was actually at times they collide so i might i might feel that because my logic and reasoning something should be done but my wife was very quick to point out that what you actually don't want to do either. that is what will make you happy and uh, that is when i realized that what we seek in our life every day uh, the joy and happiness so logic and reason have a place and your emotions and feelings have another place that is what i think i realized then so i wanted to dedicate the book to both my mother and my wife for that because both of them were very instrumental in developing these two different centers of thought eventually i learned that both of them have their place both are extremely important to lead a meaningful fulfilling life but both of them have different pieces and you should not mix them i am very finicky or i'm very critical when somebody brings emotion and thoughts into an argument which is primarily about reason and even the other way around. that if you are talking about your emotions if you are talking about what makes you happy or what makes you sad you should not bring reason and logic into that so i think understanding what aspect of your life belongs to which center is important it may be different from person to person but in order to lead a meaningful satisfied and happy life i think each individual must uh, decide which aspect of your life to ascribe center of thought 
That's beautiful. In the same book, you go on to acknowledge Ramana Maharishi, Swami Vivekananda, Seneca, Nishche for influencing your book across time and space and lending to it their teachings, words and wisdom. Tell us more about the teachings and wisdom which you carry with you. Gosh, I think I recognize that my thoughts, my ideas, my understanding is not really mine because it has been influenced by a lot of things that I've read and learned. So I really believe that a lot of people have a large role in in what I think now. It's like a wave breaks out on the beach. So there is an entire ocean behind that wave. And the wave is just one small part that finally breaks onto the beach. And I think each of us is like that wave. We have an independent existence. To the extent that a wave has her independent existence. So the same way that our thoughts today would never have come into existence if it hadn't been for a lot of things which we have learned from history. So in the book, yes, in the book, I acknowledge only a few names, but there are a lot of other people who have heavily influenced me. And what have these been with particular reference to Vedanta? I think what I really learned from Raman Maharshi was very logical arguments for all new students. If they read or if they begin by reading some interpretation which they are not aligned to, they find it very hard to accept. The same thing happened with me because the initial few books which I read about, they were very theistic. They, They spoke a lot about devotion, less about Enquiry. The books about Hershey were the ones which, which really heavily focused on enquiry. So I do mention Seneca was what I learned from Seneca was a very practical view towards life and a clear separation of what is important to you from what is not important to you. So Seneca heavily speaks about that. Very useful for somebody who wants to lead a happy, content life. And I think those writings really helped me separate the things which I really want to focus upon from the ones which I will count as the non-essential things. Yes. Viraj, in all your writings, you bring a lot of wisdom which has been spoken by philosophers, by scientists. And I see that you also talk about Schopenhauer. And one of the beautiful quotes from Schopenhauer is, it is difficult to find happiness in oneself, but it is impossible to find it anywhere else. How do you connect this with all what we have spoken today? I think ultimately happiness is what we all seek, right? And at the end of the journey, either through science, through art, through hobbies or through any other experiences, I think we all ultimately seek happiness. We want to be happy. And the quest for happiness, again, begins trying to define what you mean by happiness. Most people seek happiness blindly, without asking themselves, what is happiness? So there again, right? how you frame a particular question is giving half the answer. What is happiness is different from the question about what makes me happy. The question what makes me happy is again different from the question of what do I need to be happy. And let's start with the third one. right? For example, what do I need to be happy? Right? If you start by asking yourself that, you can maybe just start by taking a page and writing down everything that you would need to be happy. Okay, I need a good job. I need a good car. I need this. I need 
list down the 10 things that you need to be happy which if you had those things you would become happy five years from now you take that list out and pick uh, mark all the things that you have now and you would find that you were able to obtain even if not all things all but your happiness was still the same so this experiment people have done right? i have also done in my own capacity and like uh, beyond any reasonable doubt i would say that things don't make you happy getting things will not make you happy. so the question which we started from right what do i need to become happy is then kind of struck out then because then you feel that happiness does not depend on on what you have it's not there in different objects that you have whether they are material objects like the latest gadgets or or popularity or number of instagram followers so then you kind of strike off the question of what do you need to become happy happiness then lies within you and then you need to start exploring where inside of you does happiness lie and then you start striking off things one by one and finally you end up striking off everything that's that's again a very interesting revelation that one gets right because i think on a level if you explain this to people they are able to understand this right so, so I, i don't think anybody would disagree with this reasoning because we have all experienced this so people seldom disagree with this but again they don't end up implementing it in their lives so there is a difference between knowing something understanding it and experiencing it you may even understand that okay you may understand that e stands for energy and light square okay i know the equation e equal to mc square now i have understood the equation and that what each of those terms be i may even understand how that equation was derived but but is that all so the same thing is with this argument about happiness only a very few are truly able to understand the equation in all its significance and the same thing is with this argument about happiness also that it's when you experiencing it when knowledge converts to understanding and then understanding converts to experience that is where magic is the books that i write are about this experience books on dry philosophy are they tell you about something and they logically analyze that but we don't want to stop at the stage where we have just understood it right we want to convert that understanding into experience and uh, again you would ask me how can you do it through if you want somebody to experience it how can you do it through yes we cannot right i mean the uh, book is a book right that person is going to read the book so we cannot drive somebody's experience through a book but at least the characters in the book they undergo this so in my book about in her journey the central character of the book she undergoes this journey right she starts from a situation which most of us face where we are in the prison of our own making she breaks out of that prison and she undergoes this journey from knowledge to understanding to ultimately the experience of happiness back to the quote happiness is finally ultimately to be found inside of it is hard but that's the only place you can where you have any chance and viraj coming to education it is my understanding what schools are primarily teaching today particularly on the science side is classical physics 
do you think there should be an element of quantum physics which should be brought in to understand appreciate or bring that kindling of the vastness to which we belong i think everybody should know quantum physics that it started out as to explain observation of particles that was the only scope of it so that quantum physics should be taught but i think the question that you asked is not more from the technical engineering but more from the helping students understand that we belong to a much broader or more but but about teaching quantum theory quantum science quantum physics without getting into equations is very dangerous because you draw parallel with spirituality religion they are most often they end up using the actual science part to advocate something so my concern is that right, that if we start teaching in school it is going to be hijacked by spiritual teaching so very important i think the answer you gave it, it definitely makes me think and i think it's a very valid uh, what is leadership for you for me it's about creating where team as a whole and also your team as an individual right where every individual is able to align and can grow in that particular track so for me enabling the team supporting the team so of course the team needs to fulfill those objectives that is important but i don't think the leaders get those things done i think it's the enabling the team that the interests of the team get fulfilled so in the first case where a leader drives the team right it's, it's all about okay to do this let's get that done the view that i have it's about hiring the right people right? it all it all hire the correct people i think you cannot create an interest i think you can fuel an interest if you hire the correct people then you have already solved half of the challenge and secondly you create the right environment in the team put giving them access to the right resources right giving them the right guidance it become a lot easier if you have the right people because then the right people need less guidance they need less inspiration because their interests are already aligned so it it all starts by creating a team where individual interests are aligned with objectives and once you have that you don't need to drive the team yes and what are some of your favorite reads some of your favorite books which you would like to share on this forum for people who would listen to this so so one don't select a book just the awards or any acclaim and secondly read books or even articles which are counter to what i believe in. because after a point you end up in a echo chamber of just keep reading the books which support that i end up reinforcing the world you i have you are just reinforcing the belief it's not contributing anything and then after a point it just stagnates and i have stopped learning so learning happens only when your views are challenged so you may start that book and you may not complete it and this learning is always important so yeah so read variety then in that net you identify some interest and then you can dig deeper into those areas. and in the technology space who are the people you look up to so for me right it's always about ideas and it's less about people so even in terms of books i don't classify my reading according to books maybe more at the authors and the same thing happens in technology also for me it's always about ideas people come after that and yeah i mean tech is a very fast changing thing understand But so that's a good point do you think there's something additional which you want to talk about more as a 
concluding note i would like to say that life is in a way it's, it's all about collecting experiences so be it an experience where you get a new idea by reading a book or an experience where you travel to a new country you meet somebody new and in order to find your path towards happiness i think experiences are important more experiences you have the the more you understand how much you should value each experience you understand that experiences are important but then you also understand that they are not all important it's okay if you don't have a particular experience in life and so i think we need to start looking at life more holistically not narrowly right? that the money that you are earning is everything so we are just measuring our life in terms of money or for somebody else it might be measuring it in terms of your career ladder life is all this but it's a lot more it is about how much fun you have every day the small incidences the small joys of life but we don't think about that harshak that's the problem i think everyone will agree with everything but we need to start what we know and what we have learned we need to start converting that into experience one of my personal objectives is that okay i have learned some things i have read some books now i know some things but how can i convert this into tangible experiences i'm tempted to read out brief again from steven weinberg where he says a beautiful theory of nature is one in which the connections arise inevitably everything fits together and if you try to change even a tiny part the whole edifice collapses yeah absolutely yeah as we come to the end of this conversation i would like people who hear this podcast to also know that you are the promoter of the arc wellness retreat so something quickly you want to tell us about that the arc was a farmhouse but since it was not being used actively we decided to convert it that was another great experience i had because until then my business and entrepreneurial experience was all related to tech but that was a different industry we started it in 2014 yeah so yeah it, it, it has been a very great experience the resort is now well established it's it's a book theme and there are different quotes it, it lends the place a meaningful you, you are really tempting me i really look forward to coming and spending some time there yeah it was a really a great pleasure a great delight a lot of learning today to talk to you and as i come to the end of this conversation i just want to say that with particular reference to the upanishads because somewhere they have been the fabric which we were weaving together today we don't know the names of the sages the masters who gave us the upanishads the people who spoke them communicated them there are no signatures or no pictures of them and actually this complete absence of them makes their message so present so i just wanted to wish you with these few words that may a lot of presence come to all the extrinsic and intrinsic work which you are doing and thank you for being the guest today absolutely thanks again for having me speak yeah thanks yeah